session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Hulakwin. I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Now, you might have noticed I have not been doing the shows as consistently lately. And uh, it's for uh, a bad reason, unfortunately, which I will share later in the show. But so the books of the week have kind of been all over the place, too, because I did a show two weeks ago where I covered two books. And again, today uh, or this week, I have two books, but I decided to split them up since I have a Wednesday show. So tonight I'm going to talk about uh, one book, but the book I'll talk about Wednesday was the book of the week from last week, which is Projections by Carl Dizeroth, which is a very interesting book. Look forward to talking about that on this Wednesday's show. The show, the book from the week previous to last is Helgoland by Carlo Ravelli. Helgoland, Making Sense of the Quantum Revolution by Carlo Ravelli. And this was a fascinating book and a book that I could definitely describe as a dose of intellectual humility in the sense that uh, reading it and reading about quantum mechanics and quantum theory and quantum physics, I definitely could say I understand very little. And I think for most people that will be the case because even Carlo Rovelli himself, who was a physicist and wrote this book, um, I really like the dedication page. It says, to Ted Newman, who made me understand that I did not understand quantum theory. And so quantum theory, uh, you know, I won't even try to explain it. I could say it's because of time or because uh, it's it's too complicated to explain over the air, but really it's because I don't get it very much because it is uh, hard to understand. But the name of this book, Helgoland, comes from this uh, treeless island in the North Sea uh, and where Werner Heisenberg... Uh, made a big breakthrough when it comes to quantum mechanics and it's this very desolate spot and it's um, not much alive there but something came alive in the sense of this theory and he was only 23 years old when he he made this discovery Werner Heisenberg and so the first part of the book um, talks about the history of this discovery and the different individuals who were involved. And it does seem at times he wants to give credit to some individuals that um, have not been given a lot of credit, but also explains how different individuals contributed to uh, the development of quantum theory in its early days and in its infancy. And nearly uh, a century has passed. I think it was in the early 1920s, these uh, discoveries were being made. And so nearly 100 years, as he says, we still don't really understand um, what quantum theory tells us or can fully understand what it means, but predictions that it makes, none of them have been proven false so far, which is quite remarkable. So uh, just to give a type of an overview, 
there is classic mechanics or classical physics, and one of the individuals who gets the most credit for coming up with those basic theories is Isaac Newton. And um, people thought this was the law of the land in the sense that it was a law of the world and the universe and that it, it explained everything. But there were some observations of things that didn't quite make sense, including things like looking at electrons and trying to determine their positions and their speeds, things like that, that again are, are definitely over my head, um, that didn't quite add up and didn't quite make sense when you applied classical physics. And so people were a little bit perplexed and quantum theory seemed to be a elegant way of understanding what was being observed without quite understanding how it's happening or why it's happening. And he goes through different theories for how people explain what we observe at the quantum level, the very small uh, level when you look at uh, electrons and even the smallest particles that we could try to study that don't make sense. And he says that he believes that the theory that makes the most sense is the relational theory, which I found interesting. Obviously, as a psychologist, I think maybe it's the one that would resonate most with me anyway. Maybe I'm biased towards that. But this sense that things only exist when they are being observed or even two things related to each other need a third thing to observe that relationship to really even exist. And from a psychological level, one way that I could try to understand what we're seeing or what happens with quantum physics and quantum theory is that it's happening at a level that our brains cannot fully comprehend, at least at this time, or uh, that our brains were really never made to comprehend. Because if we evolve to survive and survive and reproduce, um, well, we don't need to know the inner workings of an atom for the most part. Now, when we do certain things where we have used atoms to do different things, atomic bombs, atomic energy, and things of that sort, it has become significant. But in general, classical physics does us just fine with everything we need to do to, to survive, move around, interact with the world, uh, we're doing quite fine with classical physics. If you don't understand the quantum level or don't recognize or even see it, you'll survive totally okay. So I think in some level, what science has done or these observations, it's gone beyond the scope really of our understanding. It's almost like we can measure something we can't fully see or we can see but not really understand and maybe we won't understand it and so as i said it gave a dose of intellectual humility for me one of seeing i just really can't even understand it even though he breaks it down and um, seems to break it down in a way that makes it more digestible and it was i think more digestible i was able to pick up i think some of it but still a lot of it was over my head but the other aspect of the intellectual humility is that as humans, we don't understand our universe fully. And we like to think we do, and okay, we get how everything works, at least at some level, and we're going to keep learning, but we really don't. And there are things that we can't quite understand. You know, things like, um, you know, he talks about the photons of light and how somehow, at times, in some ways, 
they can be, you know, as it says, magically connected in the inside cover of the book, but they can seem to be in sync, even though they might even be thousands of miles away. And I didn't quite understand how that even comes about, but as he puts it, this has been observed many times. So uh, I, I can't explain that or understand that how two objects who are distant can have an effect on each other or appear to have an effect. Maybe they don't, but it's hard to explain what's going on. Um, and, and so that's quite remarkable. And as much as we think we can get things, and if someone tells us something that doesn't fit our model of the world, like, ah, that's crazy or doesn't make sense. Well, it's a reminder that there's things even the greatest scientists of the world are very perplexed by and things that don't make sense in our classical way of thinking. We know how objects interact and we also know what objects cannot interact or influence each other, or at least we think we do. And so that to me was like this aha moment of aha, I don't know that much or aha, there's a lot out there I can't quite understand. And to me, that was quite um, you know, almost fascinating, but also scary in a way thinking, okay, well, if there's so much, I don't understand, what does that mean? Um, and, and even also a little bit, uh, again, as I said, humbling, but also makes you feel small, uh, kind of makes you feel this feeling of awe. And when you feel this awe, A-W-E, it's a sense of your own smallness, but not in like a scary way but in this way that you see the wonder and beauty of the world. Like if you see a, a huge snow-covered mountain or the Grand Canyon definitely inspires awe for people seeing how vast and massive it is and really makes you feel small. But also this sense that we, uh, you're interconnected with this great big thing. Uh, even, you know, he one of the last paragraphs of the book because he himself believes in this relational theory that explains best what we observe when it comes to uh, quantum theory and quantum mechanics. Uh, one of the last paragraphs, he says, the interconnectedness of things, the reflection of one in another, shines with a clear light that the coldness of 18th century mechanism or mechanism, I don't know which, how you pronounce it, 18th century mechanism could not capture, and that would be uh, Isaac Newton's theories and how so he viewed the world and yet another reminder that we think we're just observing the world but we always have a model of the world that is how we see things or the lens through which we see things which always that lens is going to impact that final result that observation that you have so we try to be as objective as possible, but we have to remember and understand that that is impossible to be perfectly objective. We will never be perfectly objective, and we have to acknowledge that from the outset. Uh, what we try to do is become more aware of our subjectivity and the biases that we have and how they impact what we're going to observe and how we observe things, but we never fully know. And also, it could be good to remember that when you're living in any day and age, you feel like you're at the state of the art, which you are as advanced as humanity has ever been in understanding something in science. But throughout history, people thought they kind of understood things fully, and they definitely did not. And we almost laugh at them thinking, oh, they almost closed the patent office, I forgot how many years ago, or it was suggested because they thought they 
invented everything that could be invented. And that was before uh, not only just things like the internet and computers, but even I think automobiles or airplanes, but very uh, important inventions. And they thought that was it because we can't imagine what we can't imagine. And so we can't even imagine the things that have not been invented yet um, because we can't even think of them yet. Sometimes we can't think of them. We just don't know how to make them. But sometimes we can't even think of, we can't even imagine what we can't imagine. And so the way we see the world is the same thing. We think we get it, but we don't understand how much of it we don't understand. And so to me, this book and seeing individuals in in the scientific community trying to understand things better and it's quite remarkable and inspiring but hearing them and someone like Carlo Ravelli himself share that he doesn't quite get it because you can't fully understand it I think was quite interesting and enlightening for me and again gives you a huge dose of intellectual humility about that um, and so again we look at this in quantum physics and we can say we don't really fully understand it but how often do we ourselves or hear others saying they fully understand something about the human experience uh, economics um, you know the stock market whatever it might be they tell you they fully understand something uh, but a reminder that almost always things are more complicated than people uh, want them to be and that we look for people to give us certainty, but we have to recognize that uncertainty is the most certain thing we have. Almost always the understanding of anything has to involve some uncertainty. Uh, and as I mentioned, his own uh, belief and explanation using the relational theory is quite fascinating and really hard to comprehend and it brings up philosophical issues like does something exist if there is no observer or nothing it is relating with it's hard for me to even comprehend that i have this sense that something exists you know thinking of it in an egocentric way whether or not i'm looking at it it exists but relating can mean different things it doesn't mean you know, the proverbial, if a tree falls in the forest, does anyone, doesn't make a sound if no one's there to hear it. Uh, even when that tree is falling, it's relating with other objects there um, in that forest. But it's really, again, very complex and hard to even imagine what does that mean uh, if something existed without it relating to something else. And that's really what brings things to existence. Not in some magical way that um, you know, you bring it into existence like some kind of a, a Harry Potter spell, uh, but that it doesn't exist or that everything exists in relation to each other, which he says and he describes, explains um, some of the observations from quantum mechanics and quantum theory. So again, an interesting book. Be ready if you do read it to not fully understand. Again, maybe you'll understand it better than me, but I think likely the quantum mechanics and quantum theory is uh, in itself hard to explain and hard to understand, but I, I found the book insightful and as he explored the connections between what quantum theory might tell us about even things like consciousness was quite interesting as well. So that was the book Helgoland by Carlo Rovelli. All right, let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. As I mentioned at the start of the show, uh, you might have noticed lately I didn't do as many shows. I only did one over a period of, I think, three weeks. And um, for unfortunate reason, 
my grandmother was ill and so I left town to be by her side and sadly last week on Tuesday she passed away um, and still very very sad about it and I was even wondering should I talk about it or how to talk about it but um, I did want to talk about her to honor her and um, share my gratitude to have her in my life for so long and it's possible sharing about my own grieving in some way maybe can have some positive impact just to first of all talk about grief and grief grieving and dying which is we don't talk about very much which I might touch on later in the show um, but also grieving process and people can have lots of misconceptions and that can affect how they feel about themselves but then also families will and friends loved ones will put pressure or judge their loved ones as they grieve that they should do this shouldn't do this oh you're going crazy oh that's not good this is bad you shouldn't be sad you shouldn't be sad anymore all sorts of things so I might share about how I feel and uh, the process throughout but first I uh, wanted to talk about my um, grandmother and um, how important she was in my life and how lucky I was to have her and really not just have her in my life for some time but since birth she was around and so there's pictures of her holding me as a baby and I had her through my in my life uh, till just last week and and I know that she has passed but knowing the stages of grief and knowing how I feel as much as I've cried I also know I'm still in some level in denial that it has not fully hit me yet um, that she's gone and it hits me in in different ways in different times just two hours ago um, for the last couple of months my family has been doing a a zoom to mostly to see her to see my grandma and I, I had it in my calendar and so seeing family zoom but knowing this was the first time the first Monday since she had passed we wouldn't do it I just started crying um, I wouldn't have expected seeing a, a reminder for a zoom to lead to tears but it did and um, yeah it's, it's been very hard but I as I mentioned I was very lucky to have her in my life she was a very selfless woman and inspirational in how selfless she was I, I got to speak at her funeral services and some of the thoughts I had there are still in my mind so I might share some of those um, but, but what I shared that day one of the sentiments was uh, she was my grandma and a very very loving one always nurturing always supportive loving um, always doing things for me since since as long as I can remember and before I can remember and uh, you know I just accepted that that was well that's She's my grandma, and that's what grandmas do, and that's what she does. But I didn't know much about her life and, and what she went through. And this is something we all experience with our parents and different individuals. When you're a kid, they're just your teacher, your doctor, your parents, your uncle, your aunt, and they just kind of exist in that role. But then as you get older, you start to realize, wait, they're not just my family member my teacher or my grandparent they had a life of their own before me uh, maybe some of this is the egocentrism of childhood and also just our lack of 
really understanding the world at that point, um, but they became something or ended up here in some way. And so my grandmother um, had a very, very hard childhood when she was, I believe, around six. She lost her mother, and then at around seven, within a span of about a year, she lost her father, essentially making her and her three brothers orphans to a degree, and they were raised by their grandmother. And so I didn't know this, that she went through that herself, that here I was uh, having two parents and then also some grandparents, and she really didn't have parents from a uh, very young age and had to live in that way. And I'm sure it contributed in in some ways to um, some of the worry and anxiety I always saw in her. Uh, which when you're a kid, you don't really understand that she worries more than others. But then as you get older, you might recognize that. But then when you get older, you still might not recognize any of the why. And now with some more understanding, I know, of course, there's a genetic component to these types of things. But of course, when you are um, experiencing such huge traumas of losing parents so young and all the things that come after that and other things that she had to experience on top of that, other types of traumas, smaller traumas, uh, it makes sense that you have a mindset that's going to be more on alert, more worried, more in survival mode. And so I could now understand that better, um, but it was um, impossible for me to really even think about these things or understand it as I was younger. But now that I'm getting older, it makes me even more grateful for how selfless and loving she was to everyone, but for me personally, that I was lucky to experience that. I I don't remember her ever asking me for something, that something should be for her or about her. She was always in a giving mode and giving mood um, her whole life. And primarily that was in the kitchen, which I think was the easiest um, way for her to show love. Maybe also just her concern of survival, just making sure you have food. Uh, but she was always in the kitchen and somehow always had things to do. But she was nonstop working and doing things. And again, mostly for others. She would herself eat very little and simple things, but would try to make everyone and me, like my brother included, our favorite foods and things that she knew we liked while also trying to make sure we ate certain fruits and vegetables that maybe we didn't like but that she knew would be good for us and encouraging us in that way but always i just remember her um in the kitchen or sewing things making things she would uh, make us uh, we were talking about this other day backpacks or at least embroider our backpacks with things wallets different um articles of clothing if something had a hole in it she would quickly sew it up even i think sometimes if jeans were supposed to have holes in them she maybe would start working on it not realizing that was the style and we actually paid for the holes but she was always doing something for other people um not only that she was going above and beyond what you'd expect from an immigrant woman coming in her later life uh, she even would volunteer at my school. Now, this was kind of a crazy coincidence. Uh, on the way to the studio today, uh, I moved just a week before I went out uh, to Tennessee to be close to her. Um, so I was only here a couple of days, and so I'm in a new home, and I was coming from that home to the studio, and I made a wrong turn. 
and I made a wrong turn and I was trying to turn around once I realized I probably was also distracted because I was thinking about her Uh, and I made a wrong turn and I made a right and I looked and I was at my elementary school um, here close to where the studio is maybe a mile or so away and I just couldn't believe it I, I said holy and something I can't say on the air because I couldn't believe that there was my elementary school that I actually would go with my grandma too. She would volunteer there, which and now I realize how remarkable that is. Someone who's only been in the country a few years, um, obviously only speaking English for a few years, coming to an elementary school. Uh, and I think I took it for granted or I didn't know how to take it as a five or six year old. But she would come to the school and volunteer and help out. And then we would walk back together and I, we, we lived not so far away. So we would walk back together and she would practice things from school, some other types of uh, religious types of things that she wanted to teach me. And then halfway through, I think she knew I would get tired. So she would give me a piece of gum. That was one of the things she always had gum on her. So she'd give me a piece of gum and take a little break because I was about five. I think even walking a short distance was not, or what's short for an adult was not so easy for me. So we'd take a little break. She'd give me a piece of gum and then we walk the rest of the way home. And now I realize how lucky I was um, to have that. Just first of all, to have a grandma, as I said, she didn't even have her parents a lot of her life, but also have a grandma that would do something like that, that would volunteer at the school, uh, maybe just to be closer to me or to help out. I don't even know. I wish I had asked her what made her do that. Maybe other family members might know what was the motivation, but nonetheless, that to have that was quite remarkable and it was such a synchronicity type of a moment that I was went by that school today quite accidentally or who knows unconsciously I took myself there. But that was that was an interesting moment. Um but yes, throughout life I got to have her by my side in different ways and different capacities. And as I said, she was always supportive um, to the extent that even uh, this might be hard to talk about. I hope I can get through it. But um, she would always listen to my shows and actually listen to them live. And she knew when they were. And for the last years of her life, she was on the East Coast, which is three hours ahead of Los Angeles. So uh, right now it's 8.30 p.m. here, which is 11.30 p.m. there. And for someone in their late 80s at that time. Uh, But she would listen to my shows every night, every time I had them. Um, And she had them set up everything so that she could do so and, and make it happen. And she would listen even to the extent. And this was so cute and sweet. Um, I was in New Jersey at my aunt's house where she was in late 2019 and we were there and of course I was on uh, a little vacation so I wasn't doing a live show on Monday night but we were sitting all together and then when it was approaching 11 p.m. which is uh, 8 p.m. west coast time she went to her room and I said oh uh, mom was our grandma where are you going she's like I'm going to listen to your show and I said, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm here, so it's a repeat. She's like, oh, that's okay. I still, you know, I'm going to go listen. So she went to her room and listened to my show and then came out. Um, and I don't know. I wonder if she thought um, it has some kind of impact like ratings. You know, maybe she know, knew or knows about ratings and how TV shows and radio shows can it affects their popularity or numbers or I don't know what, but she was that supportive that even though she knew it wasn't live and I was literally there, she wanted to support my work and go listen to my show, which was so 
so sweet and touching. And every time I heard that she was listening or was asking about how to make sure she could keep hearing it, um, I, I was just touched and still makes me uh, a little bit emotional thinking about it. And it's sad to think this is the first Monday show um, that I don't have her. Um, yeah, even uh, I got back to Los Angeles last night pretty late. And it's interesting the ways it hits you and maybe ways that don't make sense. But I opened the door and I just moved, as I said, to this house. And my first thought was when when I left here, I had a grandma. And now I don't. Um, yeah, it was, you know, and I, I when I saw her and... She had heard I moved, and she's like, oh, congratulations that you moved. And I told her, it's your house. You can come anytime. And um, sadly, that didn't get to happen in the sense of her physically being there. But I will carry her with me there and, and everywhere. And that's something um, that makes it a little bit easier to know that although physically she's not here, it doesn't mean my my relationship with her uh, ends, and I really do believe that. Um, I unfortunately can't communicate with her directly, but through what she taught me and what I experienced with her, that relationship will continue. And through what I learned from her, both from things she taught me directly, but observing her, I hope to live my life inspired by her strong characteristics of selfless service to others, caring for others, um, making sure you support your loved ones at all times, you're so unconditionally loving. And so I know I don't get to have her in my life physically anymore. I'm grateful for the over 39 years I did get to have her, but I will carry her with me um, for the rest of my life. And I'm very, very grateful for that as well. And so um, I miss her already, and I know I will continue to miss her. And different situations and occasions will remind me that she's not there, and I will miss her then because I'll feel her missing. But um, again, my feeling right now is very mixed. Lots of sadness, pain. Um, but also lots of gratitude and, and even joy that I got to have her and be there those last days. And, and maybe after the break, I'll continue a bit talking about some of that, but also about the grieving process in general and some uh, lessons I think I've gotten from this experience so far. It's still very fresh, but I wanted to talk about that after the break. Uh, let's go into that last break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, as I shared in the last segment, um, fortunately, um, my grandmother passed away last week and still um, dealing with a lot of the hurricane of emotions, different types of ups and downs and feelings, sometimes forgetting it and getting reminded, um, sometimes even feeling happy about other things. Sometimes thinking of memories of her and being sad. So I was even laughing. We shared memories together and laughed um, at times as well about her and, and different things. And, and it was quite nice. And so we did celebrate her life as well as much as it was very sad. And so I'm grateful for a lot of things. But I'm also grateful that 
I got to um, see her this last time. Uh, she had a heart attack, which is why I went um, to Tennessee. I took a red eye Friday night and flew out there. To, uh, this is Friday night three weeks ago and just planned to stay a week. I didn't know what to expect. Um, but very thankfully, she survived much longer. And so I pushed my flight back one week and then the next week pushed it back again and just came back last night. Um, but I'm glad I got to see her. I didn't know if I would. She was really not doing well then. And doctors didn't think she would make it even another day or two. I got there as soon as I could. And again, was lucky to see her. And we even shared some really nice moments. She was um, alert for a little bit of the time that I was there, at least a good amount of the time, actually. But especially the first day I was there, uh, we had some nice conversations. And I was holding her hand. She was holding my hand with both hands. And I was um, just, it was just really sweet and nice. And I'm grateful for that. And something that's interesting about what I, we experienced of her those last weeks was that she wasn't a very physically affectionate person. She was very loving uh, and you felt that all the time, but physical affection or even verbally being very affectionate with her words uh, until much later in her life, the verbal affection got more but the physical affection, she kissed me so much when I was there, even at the hospital. She even would pull me forward. And I can't imagine she had a lot of strength, but you can just tell she wanted to just kiss and say, I love you in English and in Farsi. And it was, it was really remarkable and beautiful and so enjoyable. And, um, you know, we talked about this, what maybe led to that. And it did seem like in some ways, you know, her whole life, she worried a lot and was always worrying. And I think maybe she had accepted that she would be leaving soon. And maybe there was nothing left to worry about or that she couldn't do anything about it. And so it seemed like that worry had went away and more. We were just getting this beautiful, loving affection, which was really sweet and great. And I'm so glad I got to enjoy that and experience that. And it also just makes me think in general about human beings and human society when we have anxiety about surviving um, a scarcity type of mindset we're much more it's harder for us to just be loving to one another when we have those things to worry about now she was always giving in, in the ways that she was but this kind of affection didn't show up as much until these last days and i'm so grateful i got to be there for that the uh, stories we shared somehow I think she looked at my teeth and said oh your teeth are still so good or you kept them so good I don't know exactly what she meant or what she was looking at but then I said oh you know my first tooth I ever lost um, you found it I was eating an apple and I ate the apple and I threw it away and then I saw my tooth was missing and then I remember she looked in the apple and it was kind of hard because the apple and the tooth are kind of a similar color, the inside of the apple. And she found my tiny little tooth and gave it to me. Um, and we shared that story and she, she looked at me smiling and it was very sweet. But those are memories I will never forget and I'm, I'm so grateful for. And I think looking at my the grieving that's happened so far, it's never, ever easy. And it's very painful, but I think I'm I feel lucky that I did get to get some closure um, because of seeing her and talking to her and even 
saying some things to her. I was actually there to see her just a few months ago in March, and seeing that she had gotten much weaker, I actually cried a lot that time when I was seeing her and leaving because I didn't know if I would see her again. And on, on that trip, I made a point to say a goodbye to her in case it was the last time. So I'd had some closure then, but seeing her again, um, I was able to share with her uh, my appreciation for everything she did, my gratitude to her, tell her I love her so many times and and how grateful I am and hug and kiss her many times and let her know in any way I could my gratitude and my affection for her. So this did help um, give a sense of peace to myself and this lack of regrets. I mean, I, I know I could have done more for her throughout my life and her life for sure. So I'm sure if I look at it, there's things I would find that I could have done better, but it didn't leave me thankfully with any big regrets uh, when it came to my relationship with her. And one of the things that leads to what we call complicated grief or complicated grieving can be things like regrets or feelings we hold on to or have about the person who has died. Very often people can have strong feelings of anger from let's say parents who die that has never been processed or dealt with, especially with that person. And that can make grieving very hard because here you are feeling sad and you miss the person, but you're also mad at them for these things that happen. And then people sometimes have this strange feeling of how can I be mad at someone who's dead or I should feel sorry for them. Or there's a way we always talk about respecting the dead. So I, I shouldn't feel this way, but I do. And then they can feel bad about themselves. And it's, it could be very complicated as the term complicated grief would imply. But thankfully, uh, I didn't have that and I got to even have a more thorough goodbye with her. And I'm also glad I um, did what it, need, did it needed to be done to get there as quickly as I did to have those moments. I think I would have regretted if I hadn't gone. So I'm thankful for that as well, um, that that was possible for me to be there. Um, so that, that made it nice. So that's also something I'm very grateful for that it does make the grieving a little bit easier. I also thought about how this goodbye being a gradual process because it was very painful to see her get weaker even in the time that I was there and she stopped eating and drinking in the last almost two weeks and it really was quite shocking to see that how does someone survive when they're not eating or drinking and she was already frail and small but she was very almost drinking and eating nothing for maybe a week plus. Um, and so that was sad to see, uh, definitely. But again, this type of a, um, I don't want to call it prolonged, but lengthy goodbye made it a little bit easier to deal with that pain than I think I was thinking about how hard it must be when individuals have someone who dies as a surprise, especially if they're much younger or if it was just a totally unexpected or from an accident or surprise medical type of issue. And so death is never easy, but I think it's easier when it's expected um, than when it's completely out of the blue. So I was grateful for that. And, and this might, I don't know how it comes off, but I felt that there was some sense of justice that she lived a long life um, I think she suffered more than she definitely deserved or anyone deserves, that's for sure. 
Patzil that she got to live a longer life felt fair in a way. I don't know how to explain it other than that word. But when someone dies, a child dies, it feels unfair. It doesn't feel right. Um, but when someone does make it later into their years, it's still hard and we want them to live longer, but we can understand. And so she was almost um, 91, just approaching 91. So that made it a little easier too. And so at this point, I can also add, when we're looking at grieving, it's realizing that no two grieving processes are going to be the same. First, individuals are each different. We're going to go through it differently and in a unique way. But also then even within that person, they will grieve differently because different people have different relationships. The deaths are different. The lives were different, all, all of that. So there isn't one way. When we even say complicated grief, it's always going to be a bit complicated. Uh, and it's never going to be easy and just something to keep in mind that, you know, there isn't this one way that it should be done. And if you don't do this, that's not good. And related to that, um, we actually talked about this as a family after she passed that let's try to allow each person to go through this in their own way. Um, and that could be tough because sometimes maybe someone wants to be close when someone else wants some space which can happen in any relationship, but especially, let's say, during grieving, maybe, oh, let's talk about the person and someone does wants to be distracted for a little while. We need some of that. Someone wants to go for a walk. The other person wants to rest. I mean, you know, it's just uh, different things. Someone wants to go visit the gravesite. Someone else doesn't. Um, there isn't this exact way that we should do it. And, of course, we want to go through it together, but we also have to respect that we might not be at the same place at the same time. Um, and as a result, we might not want to do the same thing, and we have to respect that. So I think that's also very important in the grieving process to allow that space for each person to go through it individually. Another moment that I thought was a bit interesting, um, you know, you had these realizations after she passed, very sad, we all cried a lot and had to go through some you know, logistical type things. But a couple hours after that, I think we just wanted to get out of the house and just, you know, clear our heads a bit. And so we went to our favorite coffee shop in that area. And when we were there, I had this realization, everyone was very polite to us anyway, but I did have this realization that here we were, um, I'd lost my grandmother, other people in our small little group lost, uh, you know, she was the same person, but had a different relation to d different people. Um, and no one in that coffee shop, the people serving us or around us, would have any idea. We didn't walk in with a sign that we just are, are grieving a loved one. Um, no one would know. And so it was a reminder, you know, you hear these types of sayings of uh, you never know what battle someone is fighting or what they're going through. But it really did become clear to me in that moment. No one would have known that that's I just lost my grandmother uh, within hours of being in that coffee shop. And they wouldn't know to treat me differently. And hundreds of times, probably, I've seen someone who's just either lost someone or gone through something horrific, horrible, traumatic, and I have no idea. And so it is that reminder of when to treat others with kindness. I think you should do that anyway. But it could be a reminder that you don't know what they're going through. So even more reason to treat people with kindness and love um, no matter what. And you don't know what they are going through. So that was an interesting moment. Um, thankfully, everyone was very kind, just naturally, it seemed, but it, sometimes it's not that way. And so that was that was interesting as well. Also, going through it together was 
very helpful in a way. I think we, it's like carrying a, a big load, you know, like let's say a couch or something. Um, you maybe can do it alone. It's a lot harder. But when you share it in a way, some of that weight gets distributed and becomes lighter in a different way. So I think we all experienced that as well, that there it became a little lighter having each other, having other loved ones around um, was very, very important and very nice. And so I'm nearing the end of the show. And definitely because uh, she was so important to me, I will talk about her more in future shows. Also, because I think grieving is a important topic that often is ignored. Uh, I read the book and talked about the book, um, A Matter of Death in Life by Irvin and Marilyn Yalom. Um, and so I, I want to talk about this topic more because I think it's one we, we avoid and ignore. But I do want to conclude the show by, again, saying, Mom Bazor, Grandma, I love you and I miss you so much. And I'm so grateful to have had you in my life all these years. Thank you for being who you were and for loving me the way that you did. I will continue to try to make you proud. Um, she was so unconditionally loving. I'm sure she would be proud no matter what I do, but I am motivated and inspired by you, the love you gave me and the, the life you lived. And so thank you again. I'm very grateful. I miss you. I love you. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.